We live in an age where our excitement about technology seems equaled by our fear. Yet, in some ways, how we feel seems irrelevant. Most people would, I think, agree that social media, whether its impact on political polarization or young people's mental health, has made the world a worse, not a better place. But does anyone seriously think we can put the genie back in the bottle? Indeed, the protocols of one of our most prominent social media platforms, Twitter, are the result less of a consideration of public interest than of the eccentric whims of one of the world's richest men. So as predictions of the possible impact of AI become ever more apocalyptic, what should we do? What can we do? In this episode of Forward Vision, I'll be talking with Meredith Broussard, an academic, technologist and writer. In her new book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender and Ability Bias in Tech, she makes a powerful case for us to understand and take control of the technology that increasingly dominates our society and, according to her, reinforces some of its worst qualities. Bored of the same big ideas podcasts that teach you nothing? Sick of self-appointed leadership gurus who peddle the same tired old tropes? Want to really get under the skin of some fresh thinking? Then you've come to the right place. This is Forward Vision, the podcast presented by Matthew Taylor and brought to you by the Forward Institute. Welcome, Meredith. How are you? Hi, great to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining. I found the book fascinating. Now, the book's only recently been published, but it's typical, isn't it, of this field that even though your book's only just been published, even since then, the AI debate has kind of exploded with some of the field's most prominent scientists and business leaders issuing these terrifying warnings. I just wanted to start before we get into the book, Matthew. What do you make of this sudden apocalyptical narrative about AI? Well, I'm not really concerned with existential risks about artificial intelligence. I mean, I think it is fun to talk about robot takeovers and the end of the world and what have you. But when we're talking about AI, I really prefer to keep the conversation on real harms that are being experienced by real people right now. Things like mortgage approval algorithms that are discriminating against borrowers of color the very human biases that are baked into generative AI, the way that recidivism algorithms are biased against people of color and contributing to over-policing and over-surveillance of neighborhoods of color. I think we don't need to worry about existential risks because AI is pretty bad already. And I've seen some commentary, Meredith, that suggests that in fact this stuff about the kind of end of the world is actually a smokescreen. It's actually an attempt to distract us from these more here today, almost kind of prosaic challenges and making sure that algorithms work to social good. Do you think that's part of what's going on? Well, what I talk about in the book is some very concrete examples of where AI is going wrong and how there's a lot of confusion about what AI is and isn't, right? So just to clear up that confusion, AI is math. It's a very complicated, beautiful math. It is not magic. And when we build a machine learning system, it's a very distinct 
understandable process. What we do is we take a whole bunch of data, we throw it into the computer, we say, computer, make a model. The model shows the mathematical patterns of the data. And then what we can do with the model is we can use it to decide, to predict, to generate. Like we can generate text, we can generate images. So it's only a slightly opaque process. And so when you start thinking about it that way, and you start thinking about what are the problems in the data that we're feeding in, it becomes easier to see how social problems of the real world can get embedded in AI systems, right? Because all of the, say, financial inequality of the real world is reflected in the data we're using to train AI systems. So of course the AI is going to make decisions that are biased. I often see the world through a kind of two by two matrix. And and I was just thinking about that reading your book, because if there's a two by two matrix where on one axis, it says the technology is brilliant and wonderful and transformative versus the technology is actually not terribly good and often fails. And the other axis is the technology is a great force for social good. And the other end of the axis is, well, no, it's quite harmful. You're you're in the kind of bottom left-hand corner in the sense that you want to say not only we need to be alert to the dangers of algorithms, the dangers of the way in which technology is being used, but you also want to introduce a healthy amount of skepticism. I think you want to say that an awful lot of what is said about technology is boosters and the technology just doesn't work as well as people claim. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I'm not just in the bottom left or the top right corner of that grid. I'm like taking the grid and like crumpling up the piece of paper that is written on, (laughs) right? Because we really want to reduce things to binaries. It's easy to understand things that way. Technology is good or technology is bad. But what I'm arguing in this book and in my last book is that we need more nuance to the way that we talk about it particularly when it comes to AI, one really useful way to think about it is to pin the AI to a context. So it's not about is AI good or bad, it's about what is the right tool for the task? And we have to look at the context where we're using AI and decide if it's appropriate, right? So facial recognition, for example, is a kind of artificial intelligence. And we know that facial recognition is biased. It is better at detecting light skin than dark skin. It's better at recognizing men than women. It tends to not recognize trans and non-binary folks at all. And when you do an intersectional analysis of its accuracy, it's best of all at recognizing light skin men. And it's worst of all at recognizing women with dark skin. So if we look at facial recognition used in policing, we already know that there's going to be disparate impact on communities of color. So it's not about, oh, is this good or bad? It's about the context. And in fact, I would argue that we shouldn't be using facial recognition in policing at all. Yes. And you make that case really strongly. I work now, Meredith, in the kind of area of health policy. And we often talk about the fact that only about 20% less actually of your health outcomes are to do with the interventions of the health service. The other 80% are to do with other factors. Genetics is part of it, but also kind of the social determinants of health. I just wonder what you would say the proportions are in terms of these technological harms. What proportion is just because of the data? Because the data that is chucked in is itself reflective of an unequal world. And to what extent, what proportion of it is the technology itself that somehow in its design, in what is claimed about it, exacerbates that? 
I think that something that's really useful for me is to just take a step back and wonder where did this belief that the technology works come from? When we're talking about AI for health, for example, who are the people who told us that the machines were going to be better than the humans? Well, it's the people who are trying to sell us the machines. I'd say quite often the politicians as well. Politicians do love technological futures. It's always a great headline. So I think that I, I agree with you. It is the companies, but it's also quite often aided by politicians who want a great press release. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we all want a better world. Like it's very seductive, the idea that there's going to be a machine that's going to make life better. There's going to be a machine that's going to deliver us from the problems of being human. And especially when you get this marketing rhetoric about, oh, if you use this technology, it's going to save so many lives. It's a logical fallacy. It's a rhetorical trick, but we fall for it every time. I mean, that sounds incredibly cynical, but honestly, we all want to save lives. We all want to make the world a better place. And so the promise of AI in medicine is really easy to believe in. One of the things that I write about in the book is I write about, uh, I mean, I write in part about social determinants of health, but I also write about the vision of AI-based cancer diagnostics. Which you experienced yourself. Yes, which I experienced firsthand. So I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the beginning of the pandemic. And at one point I was looking at my electronic medical record and I noticed a note that said, this scan was read by an AI. And I thought, wow, that's really wild. I wonder what the AI found. I wonder who built this AI. I wonder what kinds of biases are in the AI. And then I just got busy and I forgot about it. But then I came back to it and I devised an experiment. And so what I did was I took my own mammograms and ran them through an open source AI in order to see if the AI would detect my breast cancer. And I did this as a way of writing about the state of the art in AI-based cancer detection. And so what I discovered is that, first of all, the AI worked. Good job, AI. It did not work the way I expected, though. It did not diagnose me the same way that a doctor would diagnose me. And so that conceptual misunderstanding, which is shared by a lot of people, was really interesting. And the big takeaway was that it's entirely possible that in the future, someday, we'll have really good AI-based cancer diagnosis, but that day is not now and it's not anytime soon. I want in a second, Meredith, to turn to some of the key concepts in the book. But just to clarify, in case anybody listening thinks, well, this is all a very kind of negative view, of course you recognize that technology, the AI can be used for very powerful, positive purposes. And I, I guess thinking about the health service here in England, one of the useful purposes I've seen technology put to is analyzing waiting lists for medical procedures in order to understand the kind of stratification of those waiting lists in order to identify, for example, that black people may be further down that list or that people with learning disabilities may be further down that list in order that, that can be addressed or pretty effective forms of risk stratification in order to understand which people in the community are most at risk, which will tend to be more disadvantaged people in order to be able to put in place preventative interventions. So, I mean, look, it's a really obvious point, but of course, you're not saying that 
all forms of technology are either bad or failed. Yeah, of course. I'm saying we need more nuance to the conversation. Technology is complicated. One of the things that I do in the book is I explain machine learning in detail, probably in more detail than some people would like. But one of the things that we don't have is we don't have really good plain language explanations of what's going on inside complicated technology. And that leads to a lot of confusion. It leads to the people who make technology doing gatekeeping. And in order to be empowered members of our democracy, where algorithms are increasingly being used to make decisions on our behalf, we do all have to increase our level of computational literacy so that we can push back when algorithms make decisions that are unfair or unjust. Yeah, no, and that's the point I think you make incredibly powerfully. And I would say as a layperson, I thought your level of detail was absolutely right. I learned stuff, but I didn't get to the point where I had to put the book down and think, hang on, this is over my head. There's three concepts in the book that I want to explore a little further. So let's start with, this is the order I think they occur in the book. Let's start with techno-chauvinism, lovely word. Tell us what you mean, but I know you've been referring to this already, but tell us exactly what you mean by techno-chauvinism. Sure. Techno-chauvinism is a kind of bias that says that technological solutions are superior to others. What I would argue instead is that we should think about using the right tool for the task, because sometimes the right tool for the task is absolutely a computer. And sometimes the right tool for the task is something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on a parent's lap. One is not inherently better than the other. It's about the situation. Right? So when we adopt techno-chauvinism as our default, then we make inappropriate decisions around technology. And when we have a more balanced view, when we look at technology as not magic, but just as a tool in our arsenal, then we can make more rational, considered decisions about when the technology should and shouldn't be used. It's a great concept. I've used it myself a couple of times since reading the book. So that's a kind of quite a strong political concept. Let's turn to something slightly more technical, but I know that having read the book, you can explain it in a way that people understand. Algorithmic auditing. And one of the reasons I'm particularly interested in this is in the kind of later stages of our conversation that we're getting into now. This podcast is sponsored by an organization called the Vaud Institute, which is an ethical leadership foundation. And so I'm kind of interested now in if you're a leader, an organizational leader, you're not head of IT or tech or digital in your company, your expertise may not be that great. And those are the kind of folks who might be listening to this podcast. So if you were to say to them, you know, one of the things you should be doing in your organization is you should be doing algorithmic auditing. And they would just say to you, okay, Meredith, but what on earth is that? Help us to understand. So I have kind of a complicated time at cocktail parties because I am really <laughs> excited about the concept of algorithmic auditing. But the problem is you say auditing and people's eyes glaze over. So let me keep it short and snappy. So algorithmic auditing is something that we do in order to open up the black box of an algorithm and evaluate it for bias. It can be as simple or as complicated as you want. And we already do auditing inside organizations, especially in organizations that are in heavily regulated industries like finance or healthcare. Auditing is just going in and making sure that all of your ducks are in a row. 
So one way that you can audit your algorithms is you can look at the decisions that are made, right? So you can look at your mortgage approval algorithm. You can look at the number of people of color who have been approved, the number of white people who have been approved, and you can compare them and see if there is disparate impact. We do this in hiring too, when we are trying to make sure that we have selected a diverse pool of candidates to interview. You can look at the numbers at earlier stages in the process too. You can look at, okay, what is the general pool of the applicants? What are the demographics of the people who have made it to the first round of interviews? There are lots of very simple ways of auditing. So there's a distinction here, isn't there, Mary, between looking at what goes in and looking at what comes out and then looking, as it were, in what's sometimes called the kind of black box of the algorithm itself, what's going on there. And as you say in the book, in order to understand what's going on in there, you do need to have technical skills. And reading that, what it reminded me of, I remember a nutritionist once saying, don't buy any item of food if it contains ingredients that you wouldn't have found in your mother or your father's kitchen. If you don't want to be ultra processed food, check the ingredients. If there's something that your mother or father wouldn't have had in the kitchen cooking for you when you were a kid, don't buy it. And I've kind of tried to apply that a bit myself. I wonder whether there's a similar principle for leaders, which is if you're buying a bit of kit, if you're introducing bits of AI, don't do it unless there's somebody in your organization who can explain to you what's going on in the middle of that if you need to know. Is that a good principle, do you think? I do like that. That would be a really good starting place. Interestingly, there is a movement to develop nutrition labels for algorithms. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. If you search nutrition labels for algorithms, you'll get a couple of different organizations who are working on this. And there's also a movement for something called model cards. And model cards are standardized ways of describing oh what goes into an algorithm and how it's constructed. So we do need better ways of getting insight into algorithms, and we do need standards around this. The standards are evolving. Algorithmic auditing is really new. So the community of people who do it is still pretty small. And like I said, the standards are coming together. The National Institute of Standards and Technology in the U.S. has something called the AI Risk Management Framework that is a really good starting point for understanding and evaluating what are the risks of an AI system. And that takes me to a third concept. And actually, although there's a lot in the book that's pretty depressing. Thank you. <laughs> but rightly depressing in the sense that people replicating and worsening biases in society the boosterism of technology companies, all of that kind of stuff. But it's positive. The ultimate story is positive because you're not, I described you as a technologist, an academic, a writer, but you're also an activist and you're an activist in this space. And so the third concept is public interest technology, which is where your book turns towards the end. I'm interested not only in how you would define public interest technology, but also tell us a bit about how this movement is growing, because that's what gave me hope, really, that you were describing something with a combination of activists, of academics, of government institutions. It felt as though there was a real momentum here. I'm really glad to hear that. One of the things that I do caution people about is that the book is not entirely a bummer. <laughs> there is some hard to hear material in there, but... 
one of the points that I'm making is that it's really difficult to have these conversations about race and gender and disability and what we want the world to be like. And it's especially hard to have these conversations at work. And so I want to honor the fact that these are difficult conversations and also to what people reflect on the fact that we can do hard things. We can understand slowly difficult to understand technology. We just have to work at it a little bit. And we can have these difficult conversations. It's just they're going to be uncomfortable at first. So the field of public interest technology is really looking head on at these complicated social issues. Public interest tech is exactly what it sounds like. It's about making technology that's in the public interest. And so sometimes that means being an algorithmic accountability reporter. Algorithmic accountability reporting is a kind of data journalism. It's about investigating algorithms, holding algorithms and their creators accountable. And then sometimes doing public interest technology might mean working inside the government. Maybe it's something like working on strengthening a government website so that in the next pandemic, when millions of people file unemployment claims simultaneously, the unemployment website doesn't go down. Because our government technology needs maintenance, repair, and upgrading the same way that our physical infrastructure does. People tend to think about websites as like, oh, build it once and then just leave it and it just like runs by itself. And that's not at all how it works. It needs to be updated constantly. It needs to be refreshed every few years. Even AI models, they drift and decay over time. They stop working. Same way that like a bridge deteriorates over time and needs maintenance and updates. Right? So we need to think differently about technology. We need to stop imagining that it's magic. We need to think about it as just math happening on machines. And we know what the physical reality of machines is. They break. They do things badly. You have to spend a lot more time than you ever anticipated doing tech support for your house. It's kind of a pain. And Meredith, it occurs to me that if you go to a business now or any large organization, they'll have certain standards. They'll have certain environmental standards they're committed to. They might have certain equality standards that they're committed to. Do you think, and maybe you'll tell me there already is, but do you think there should be a standard that organizations should aspire to in terms of things like algorithmic or auditing? So that if a company wants to boast about its technology, one can say, okay, well, that's fine. You're using this technology. It's great. But have you signed up to that kind of code of practice in terms of ensuring that your technology is transparent, is in the social good, that you do understand it sufficiently to understand? I mean, is there something like that? Do you think there should be? Maybe. I mean, that's certainly a good idea. I think that we could do two things to start. One is we could demand that tech companies are compliant with existing laws. Like there's a lot of conversation about, oh, we need a new regulatory agency to govern AI. People have been saying that for a really long time. Nobody's ever put it together. So I'm more enthusiastic about enforcing existing laws like civil rights law inside AI systems or inside tech worlds because targeted advertising, for example, has been found to violate a number of civil rights laws in the United States. For example, Facebook was found to be showing housing ads to people from only certain racial groups or showing higher paid job ads 
to men as opposed to women, right? So those we should just be doing enforcement of our existing laws. The other thing that companies can do is when you are signing a new enterprise software agreement, you can demand that your vendors demonstrate to you that their systems are audited or are not biased against different groups, right? So by demanding that the vendors proactively demonstrate that their systems are not being biased, then you're going to move the needle. I want to ask you a final question. And this has been such a great conversation. I'm sure we're not going to fall out, but it, I guess it might be an area of slight political difference, but I just want to probe it. So I don't know if you're aware of, the, I'm sure you are of the work of the political philosopher John Rawls, but Rawls has this really important principle, which is that inequality is only permitted or things which lead to inequality are only permitted if they make the lives of the most disadvantaged people in society worse off. So his argument is behind a veil of ignorance, if you didn't know what kind of person you were going to be in society, you would want society to be equal because you wouldn't know who you were going to be in that society. And if someone said, well, would you have change in that society? You would say, well, I would allow change if it increased inequality, as long as everyone benefited, because I don't know where I'm going to be in that society. Now, I felt in your chapter about disability and technology and the attempts that have been made, the claims that have been made, and how they still fall short of full inclusion, that they still represent what you describe as ableism. I felt that what you were saying in that chapter, and at one point almost explicitly, was even if a technology is better for everyone, if at the same time it also increases inequality, we should be opposed to that technology. Was I right in reading that? Is that what you feel, Meredith? So I am opposed to moving entirely over to a digital method if it's going to leave people behind, right? So you can think about tax forms, for example. When I was younger, in the pre-digital era, you went to the post office and you got your tax forms to fill them out. And now, obviously, it's so much easier to do your taxes electronically. I never want to go back to the pre-digital era of doing taxes. It would be a nightmare. But there are people out there who do not use computers, Right? There are people out there who still need the physical tax forms. And so we should still have them at the post office. We don't need to have all of the forms every single post office. Like maybe there's some kind of system where you order them or ahead of time. Like we can be more targeted about where we're getting things. But we need to think about access. And we need to think about inclusion. So that's the electronic versus the print situation. When we're thinking about digital inclusion, one of the concepts that was really important for me as I was learning about disability and accessibility for the book was the concept of a disability dongle. And so this is a term that folks use to describe some kind of product that the engineers and designers are totally certain is going to be a transformative technology for disabled people, and then disabled people don't really want it, right? So a really good example of this is the stair climbing wheelchair, 
people are always trying to invent a wheelchair that climbs stairs. And if you do an online search for stair climbing wheelchair, you will find a ton of really interesting images. And I absolutely agree as a design exercise, it's really useful to think through. Then when you go to a wheelchair user and you say, hey, do you want the stair climbing wheelchair? By and large, they'll say, no, thank you. That looks scary. That looks unnecessary. Actually, what I'd rather have is a ramp. I'd rather have a ramp or an elevator. Then you realize, oh yeah, we already have this perfectly good technology that works all the time and we don't need to over-engineer a solution. This is a debate that happens a lot in the health service in England, which is on one side, there's a kind of cavalier attitude, which is that the digital divide is closing all the time. Even the poorest people in society have smartphones now, get over it. On the other side, a kind of, you know, it's quite unusual, but some people say, look, you can't do this if anyway, anyone is going to be excluded. But I think your approach is the right one, which is, look, if the technology is going to benefit 95% of the people, then you need to do it. But what you don't need to do is to then just ignore the other 5%. What you could do is work really, really hard on how in one way or another you make sure those 5% are still included. And that really shouldn't be beyond us, I don't think. Yeah, we absolutely have the capacity to do that. And that's the kind approach. That's the ethical approach. That's the inclusive approach. And so I would love to see us moving toward that kind of mindset. Well, look, Meredith, talking to you has been as alarming, as inspiring, as engaging as reading More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender and Ability, Bias and Tech. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. As you know, this program is sponsored by the Forward Institute, an ethical leadership foundation. Listening to the AI Doom Warnings and reading Meredith's book, I'm left unsure of whether we can hope to control technology and turn it to social good But it seems to me that the leadership challenge right now is to believe that we should and to act on that belief. All of our futures depend on it. Goodbye. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organization with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.